This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. The first four, th four theses are really where Luther is starting to lay out sort of his vision for what repentance is. Um, what do you think, what is it that matters to Luther about repentance and what it means in these first four theses? Inner versus outer repentance. Hmm. And, what, and what do you think he's getting at there? That's a good question. It's a better question. <laughs> That it's not like that it's a real and total repentance, a change of your entire life from the inside out, and not just a religious, you know, kind of work. Mm. So it's not just confessing for those things that you've done, but it's seeking to put to death that sin in your life. Is that what you would yeah. say? It's perpetual in nature. It's not a one-time thing like, you know, the gateway to the Christian life and then you move into trusting in your own efforts mm. that you continually repent because you have nothing to offer. You're not getting better. You're, you're continually reminded that you, you know, you have nothing to, to bring to the table. Yeah. Well, I have a question with regards to that about what Luther means with one. When he says uh, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, does he mean the entire life as in throughout all your days? Or the entire life as in the whole man? You know what I mean? Yeah. What is, which one does he mean here? Um, I'm sure that you could imply the sort of in, like entire life of man in terms of the entire being, but because right. that would be referencing Context. the inner and outer. But I think what he's really getting at is repentance is, a, is an everyday thing. Okay, so you think he is saying that here? Yeah, he's not just saying repentance must be total, not just outer with indulgences, but yeah, must um, be inner. You know, it's a good question. Let me try to find. Y'all can keep talking. I'll see if I can find this bit. Um. Yeah, it's really total about this. All your days and all your and days. all your men. Being. Yeah, yeah. Double entendre. Probably not German though. Double entendre. Right. Or were these disputations are probably in Latin, right? Yes. They would have been translated quickly into other things, but began in Latin. Yeah. So if Luther's in this small town and most of the people are just commoners and he nails these theses to the door but he writes it in Latin, mm -hmm. what was the point? Who was going to read it? Yeah, that's the good thing about the development of technology at this time is that you had the printing press and people were happy to see works translated into other languages um, so that the 95 theses were able to be disseminated widely in other languages besides Latin. What are you asking about that moment? 
when he actually nailed it, like what was he really doing in that moment? Yeah, because oh. like, oh, okay. You know, you had said it earlier, my understanding is at this point, he wasn't really trying to like blow this up into this huge deal. Yeah. And if that was true, then why write it in the scholastic language and in, in hopes that it would be translated and put out there, they seem to be in conflict. I'm okay, I think, I think I get what you're saying now. Um, I would say that he didn't have those hopes or intent. Um, so if, if, if you look at the introduction to the 95 Theses, it says, out of love and zeal for truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following theses will be publicly discussed at Wittenberg under the chairmanship of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology and regularly appointed lecturer on these subjects at that place. He requests that those who cannot be present to debate orally with us will do so by letter. Um, so I mean, it, it really was expected to be like the disputation against scholastic theology. You, your students show up and just have a good, lively debate on the use and abuse of indulgences. I, I think with the hope that there could be movement towards correcting, you know, some of the abuses. But you know, I think like most academics, you don't start your work thinking like, "Yep, this is going to be the thing that changes um, the world." <laughs> so it was, it was probably for his students. Primarily, then, and they spoke Latin. Yeah, they would. They would. They would all know how to to work in Latin for sure. Right. So it wasn't because I understand like the you know the door of the church would have been sort of like the the common you know message board for the community. Yeah. But maybe these are dumb questions. But my American sensibilities, I'm just kind of like. Okay, if it was for his students, he's writing it in Latin, why not just hand it out at the university, you know? I'm just trying to understand, is it really true that he didn't have much more in mind when he posted this? If it was just for his students to kind of get them thinking about, then why, why go that route? The, yeah, that's, these are not dumb questions in the slightest. Um, one of the things about the story of him posting these on the castle church door is that that story comes to us from an account that was written much later um, and not by an eyewitness. So we think he did that because that would have been a common thing to do, but you can't be absolutely certain that he did that. Uh, or maybe he did it later after he'd already <laughs> Given it to his students and yeah, I mean it, it's it's possible, I suppose. Um, but it's it seems like he really just was going through the typical maneuver of this is how we set forth a disputation that we want to discuss soon. Um, obviously, he cared enough about this that he wanted to see something done because he had been uh, preaching about it, and it, and it was obviously on his mind both as an academic theological problem and for the fact that you might see one of your parishioners laying drunk in the road because he thinks he's okay because he has an indulgence. Yeah. My question's still dangling out there. Okay, here, here's, throughout life. Here's, here's Luther and the small catechism. 
for, the fourth question on, when he's discussing baptism. He says, what then is the significance of such a baptism with water? Answer. It signifies that the old creature in us with all sins and evil desires is to be drowned and die through daily contrition and repentance. And on the other hand, that, a, that daily a new person is to come forth and rise up to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Both. There it is. Whole man in all his days. Yeah. Both and. And that's, that's sort of a unique understanding, I think, of... It's the connection between baptism and repentance is key, but it's also key that baptism is something that happens to you every day. Not actually, you're not actually dunking yourself every day. We're sprinkling. Yeah, we're sprinkling. Well, that was my question: Is uh, did early Lutherans dunk all babies? I bet they did. Yeah. Um, you know, the, because it's it's the word in the water. The quantity, we'd all, you know, you always say the quantity of water and the, the way it happens is sort of the secondary issue. But Luther, I think, was pretty happy to say that immersion was probably the way to do it. And so would it be safe to say that repentance is remembering your baptism? Yeah. It's, it's daily putting to death. All of that, all that sin and desire in yourself that clings to the flesh and the old, the old man. Um, it's that contrition on the one side or the sorrow over sin. And on the other hand, it's this assured trust in the promise of the gospel that you have this new life in Christ. Um, you know, in the small catechism, I'll keep going back to that because it's, it's this glorious little document. He says, you know, when you, when you wake up, the first thing you want to do is make the sign of the cross because that reminds you of your baptism. That, that reminds you that you've been sealed in this promise um, given to you in the waters. And that is the foundation for your life every single day. So every day you're remembering that. You've been put to death and you've been raised anew. And in a very real way, I think Luther thought that just happens every single day, and it needs to happen every single day. Um, this is why I like looking at an early document like this, because it shows you that, you know, this kind of thing didn't leave him. Like, this strong emphasis on repentance, the whole man happening through the life, like, that was just something that kept being developed. Um, yeah. Yes. Now, would this, to me, when I read this first one, I hear... I mean, I see basically Luther correcting a poor version of the law mm. and just maxing it out. Like, hey, y'all are teaching the, to fulfill the law here. You just got to go to the priest and do these little X, Y thing. But no, he's actually requiring your entire life to be lived in utter obedience to all the commands. Put yourself to death, the old man, all of this. And so, you know, it's like he, he has to give the word of God its rightful place, you know, in order for people to realize that they need to die, mm. you know, I don't know. I, I guess what I'm what, I, what I'm trying to say is that this seems like the seed for his later law gospel emphasis. It's like already there, right here as well. Yeah, I think so, um, because so so much of the law gospel theology, I mean, it is intrinsically related to a proper understanding of repentance as okay. contrition and, and trust. All right.
or, or you know, yeah, sorrow, condition and trust, sorrow and faith. You know, these are the things that, um, these are the realities we live in daily. Has Erasmus written his New Testament yet? Is there any humanism that's here? And Melanchthon's not there. Because a background, maybe overthinking this. But. Humanism in Wittenberg or humanism present in the text? Humanism in Wittenberg. And as Luther read Erasmus's New Testament, because this was a big part of Erasmus, moving away from due penance, penance to be termed the passive tense, come to one's senses, have the heart turned. That was more an Erasmian understanding of repentance and not activity, do yeah. penance, works of satisfaction and all that. Didn't Luther hear find out from Stelpitz about that, that term? Was it was it Stelpitz? Or something like that. Is that what yeah, it was? who gave the other meaning of repentance or penance for the first time, right? Yeah. Luther would have heard it by now. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm having a hard time remembering at this moment when uh, Erasmus's translation would have been published. Um, while he's looking that up, let's maybe move on to... 1519, maybe. Okay, 1519, later. I know that when it finally got to him, he thought it was kind of the best thing. Well, no, he began the work in 1512. Maybe he got like an like advanced copy. Not, I mean, it might have been. A review copy. <laughs> Turns so out we're getting adult scholarly journals. Publishers proof. Right, that's right. Yeah. It'd be an interesting one. What is the power of the Pope to forgive sins? Yeah. Same as yours and mine. <laughs> Basically, yeah, it's no different than any normal priest, basically. Mm. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's, you know, the only things where the Pope is special is on those things that he especially puts on a person. And that is in cases which are reserved to his judgment, which should be pretty special. Uh, those shouldn't be happening all the time. Uh, are they happening all the time back then in the papacy? Probably more than it should, yeah. Like what's going on? I just have no context for um, there would just be times, as I understand it, where um, when there's a problem with a particular person, that person's case for con confession and penance and all this could be reserved to the Pope. Like Supreme Court gets all yeah. the way up there. And it's his judgment alone to do penance and to absolve the person. Um, and that would, that would typically involve, I think, sort of extra burdens and extra problems. Um, the first part of Thesis 6, I think, is a good example of that distinction between whether the sign is the thing itself or whether the sign signifies. So the Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring and showing that it has been remitted by God. Mm. That's, that's a really good example of this early um, Understanding is, you know, obviously before Luther has fully developed his understanding of what the word does. Um, 
trying to make sure we don't run out of time here. Let's, let's skip ahead um, to theses 36 to 40. Also, I should mention that at this time, Luther still believes in purgatory, because um, in Thesis 29, he says, who knows whether all souls in purgatory wish to be redeemed, since we have exceptions in St. Severinus and St. Paschal, as related in a legend. And this is, as you see, probably see in the footnote, it's a legend of these saints who wanted to stay in purgatory so that when they, you know, they could continue to work, um, so that when they got to heaven, things would be even more glorious. Mm -hmm. uh, and a thesis like this just reveals that at this time, Luther's not even going to do away with a notion like purgatory. <laughs> I mean, human will just keeps going further. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't been able to... Super irrigation. We can just make a big word out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been able to fix everything in this life, so surely I'll be able to... I'll double up. And in the in-between time. Mm. Mm -hmm. We can't go far enough. Um, yeah. The, you know, especially like Thesis 39, um, I think is where Luther sees particularly the pastoral problem of indulgences. So it's very difficult, even for the most learned theologians, at one and the same time to to commend to the people the bounty of indulgences and the need of true contrition. That's the order example, the drunk man's hand. Mm -hmm. I've got to get a jail free card. Yeah. You have to excuse a sort of overly simple simple language but in other words we're never going to fix people as it were of their sin people are never going to be um, liberated in a real way if this is how we deal with their sin um, and I don't mean fixes and we smooth everything over such that it's not there but if you lock people into this cycle of saying this is how we deal with sin um, insofar as we just don't take it seriously this is never going to be useful to a person. Just turn that over to Thesis 92, away again with the prophets who say to the people of Christ, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Mm. Not to leave people. It's very unpastoral yeah. to leave people awash in their sins and wickedness. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, Luther, he started the whole day talking about these questions that drive Luther. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they were, I think they would be driving on medieval Catholicism too. They were just giving different answers mm -hmm. that weren't, um, they were half-baked assurance, or you might say not a perpetual assurance. I think people's consciences, as Luther says, were relaxed, uh, I forget which one, uh, when they paid indulgences. I just think Luther's saying, it's faulty assurance. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm saying is maybe assurance is not, seeking assurance is not the fail-proof method that you have it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right. I've got this piece of paper. Yeah. And not a relationship with the living God. 
and you can sort of see that in Theses 30 and 31, where he says, no one is sure of the integrity of his own contrition, much less of having received plenary remission. The one who actually buys indulgences is as rare as the one who is really penitent. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of damning for the practice itself. Um, and, and it ties into number 40 there, too. So we're on thinking of 40. It says, true contrition seeks and loves penalties. Mm. Mm. I don't get that. Yeah, what do you, what do you think he means in 40? I didn't, we, we read that one. Right. I have a question mark about that. Yeah. A Christian who is truly contrite seeks and loves to pay penalties for his sins. The bounty of indulgences, however, relaxes penalties and causes men to hate them. At least it furnishes occasion for hating them. It sounds like he's saying don't blunt the law because then I mean, the consequence would be grace is better when the law is not blunted. Mm. Uh, I could be misreading that, though. I'd chalk that up to the early Luther. Later, he would say that in the happy exchange of the freedom of a Christian, that we don't pay our penalties, you know, that our penalty is paid for. Yeah. Um, and here, he's still trying to hold on to the medieval idea of some satisfaction. Mm. I could be wrong there. Yeah, I mean, happy to, I mean, having a contrition, a true re- you know, awareness of need, which is good. The false idea that I can do something about it and not in the exchange. How I read it is like, if you're truly contrite, you you have that torment of the soul, which is where the word should bring you, right? Mm. According to what we talked about a little bit ago. Right. So you want to pay for it. They're thinking they actually can, but the gospel says you can't. Jesus did it for you. Mm-hmm. So that's how I am reading it. Maybe I'm reading way too much into Luther at this point in his life. It's. I mean, we're kind of dancing on an interesting problem because we've, um, you know, we've already sort of used law gospel language to talk about this, and you can use later Luther to interpret early Luther yeah. to say something that he's not. And that, you know, is both, you can maybe miss the intention of what he was actually doing then, but it can still work. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with saying, how would I apply a law gospel hermeneutic to barely Luther? Like, can we find anything um, valuable in, he, in what he says when we read it in that way? Uh, I think, am I guilty of doing that there, you think? Maybe. <laughs> okay. And I've heard Carl Truman, because I've listened to quite a bit of his stuff on Luther, which is funny because he's reformed, but uh, he says that as a practice that you should not do, that that's how we've gotten to misinterpreting Luther around antinomianism and other things, which he's really big on. Uh, And is that sort of reading, you know, taking Luther's early stuff and interpreting it wrong or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there, I think you might be in danger if you don't know that you're doing it. Um, if, if you can make the distinction between this is early Luther and I know that he is being a little funny here. Um, he's not quite worked things out to where he's going to be. You can then, you know, do your reading like that and then say, you know, let's see what happens when we read, 
you know, the early Luther with these analytical tools we have from the later one, it might not be helpful, but I don't think it's going to throw you into heresy. <laughs> no, but it's helpful that Luther did make comments towards the end of his life about his own works, mm. what he thought were the better ones. Yeah. So he can be the evaluator of his own works in yeah. some ways because he said so. Yeah. This class would be really different if we were just going off what Luther thought was valuable. <laughs> um, so, 36. Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt. And then in the footnote it talks about how they believe that there should be a distinction between the guilt and penalty of sins. Um, is that a tension with 40? And or I guess part of it is at least now in discussions of how the gospel works, you hear people use language like we're free from uh, the penalty of sin, but not the consequences of sin. Mm. You know, horizontal consequences of sin still remain. I know Peter talked about that. So, uh, but I mean, our vertical standing before God is not. And how does this relate to that? I'm not saying that it's identical, but um, he's saying. It's almost like they're talking about you need to pay for the penalty by doing these, or pay for it by doing these penalties, which it almost sounds like they're they're giving you consequences for your sin that are a bit unnatural consequences because they're actually provided to you by the priest to do, right? Um, rather than just the natural outflow of how I hurt my brother and therefore our relationship is strained or I get fired from my job because I did something wrong. Mm. Um, how's that fit into? what he's doing here, and am I just importing something totally different than what's in this discussion here? I don't think so. I mean, it is interesting to try to think about how 40 and 36 do fit together, and I wonder if it's better to read them in reverse order. Mm. Um, and I, 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 I think that we'll quickly get into sort of law gospel talk here again, but in, in sort of 40, the problem with indulgences is that it does a, it sort of you know, he says it relaxes these penalties. It removes the need for satisfaction. Yeah, it, in the medieval system of penance, mm -hmm. contrition, mm -hmm. confession, satisfaction. Luther's not apart from it yet. Yeah, yeah. he's still in the contrition, confession, satisfaction. Yeah. So he's saying, don't get away from the need to satisfy. Oh, so when he says full remission of penalty, it's not like in the absolution, he's remitted of penalty, right, right. but he's in not, satisfaction. He's not in 1518 Heidelberg, he's certainly not in 20. He's okay. still here trying to work out satisfaction. And so we want to be able to, that hunger to satisfy. So what he's saying in 36 is any truly repentant Christian has the right to both be absolved by the guilt and to do works of penance right. to get satisfaction. Not that the priest's absolution removes your guilt and penalty. Right. The priest's absolution removes the guilt. The works of satisfaction removes the penalty. Yeah. The indulgence removes the possibility for the sinner to remove the penalty for their sins. Right. That's what he's that makes not sense. wanting right now. Yeah. Don't get in the way because he's still in that view. Mm -hmm. It's an unpastoral word to remove from the sinner any possibility to pay the penalty for his sins. Because they'll do the indulgence, but not really feel like right. done right. satisfaction. I don't need to. I don't have any works of satisfaction necessary. That makes a lot of um, sense. Yeah. He's not going to agree. I don't. I don't think the older Luther would agree with the right, right. at all. But he's not out of this yet. 
Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. He's still there. He's still in the medieval, he's modifying the medieval system. Because, I mean, what's, what's the problem with indulgences? It's that they are being abused. Right. Um, right. So if you, even if you look at Thesis 71, it says, let whoever speaks against the truth concerning papal indulgences be anathema and accursed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we are not having to toss indulgences away because they do have this sort of proper role, but they have to be limited and restricted. Um, and I think you would say if you're, if you're critiquing the churchly side of things, you have to say that they can't be caught up within this system of abuse where you're taking money from these people who shouldn't be spending money on indulgences just to furnish your you know, lavish church. Okay. Um, and I, I guess 34, too, kind of helps get at this where he says... Um, and we can start with 33. It says, People must especially be on their guard against those who say that the Pope's pardons are that inestimable gift of God by which one is reconciled to God. So indulgences are not that great gift of God because that's Jesus. But in 34 he says, For the graces of indulgences are concerned only with the penalties of sacramental satisfaction. And then the key phrase, established by man. Footnote 5 is helpful, what we were just talking about, by the way. Mm. Satisfaction being part of the medieval system. And that's what indulgences are trying to get at, is that part of the three parts. There's also one of the, oh, the footnote 7, too, is interesting because it's talking about how the practice of the early church was that the last two steps were flipped around, where you would confess, do satisfaction, and then receive absolution. And there's obviously kind of a clear logic to that. Um, but once you introduce that distinction between guilt and penalty, that's what allowed them to, to flip the two things, which is a, kind of, it's a problematic reordering, because you don't have forgiveness being the last word. You have your works of satisfaction providing that that last thing and hopefully yeah. holy holy communion be you know being the thing that's at the end of of the road for um, yeah. fulfilling penance these courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs knox students can take one week or semester length courses in person at our south florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online by bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.